All right, settle Woo. down. Let's settle down out there. We're going to jump right into this uh, this morning. First of all, let me mention that uh, I'm, I need to get higher. I can't let you sit higher than me. No, you can't. Maybe, maybe what's going on here? I don't know. The first anyway. shall be last, the tallest shall be the shortest. What is that, what Jesus said, something like that? The great, yeah, the, that's right. The first shall be last. Um, last Wednesday night, we finished the Fearless Series for Women, five weeks through the video series. We had approximately 90 women, I think, that uh, had signed up and were involved at one level or another. Obviously, not everybody was there every week uh, as life happens, but uh, we had about 90 women that went through, and I just got the word a moment ago that we have three follow-up groups for women that are going, go, going to go into the Freedom Group follow-up, and it will possibly be four groups of women that will engage in that. And, you know, I can't tell you how excited that makes me, not that there are four groups of women that need to go through that, but that we are a church family that is providing the opportunity for that many women who feel the need to do some follow-up work. And one of the things that I, as I got feedback from the Fearless Series was that there were some women who said they went into the Fearless Series uh, believing that they had never experienced sexual abuse because it was not a physical kind of thing. And as they got into, as the women developed that, the people that were on the video, they began to realize the many different avenues by which a woman can experience sexual abuse that does impact her in her life in some way. And so several of them, many of them, actually a good number of them, as they wrote their notes to me, said that they went into it going there because they wanted to be educated about the issue, wanted to protect their daughters or whatever, and they came out of that realizing that they had experienced a form of sexual abuse that was not physical, that had impacted their life. And I'm so excited that that came out in the midst of this thing because I do believe there are a lot of women uh, who uh, have been uh, debilitated in some form because of this, but because it was not physical, never sought help, hope, and healing. And so as this thing goes around the country, I believe that that is also going to happen for other churches. So thank you. Yes. Well, this morning, <clears throat> we are starting a series that we've titled Tough Issues. And this may be one week long. <laughs> <clears throat> Not because there are not plenty of tough issues that we can deal with, but because I need to get sleep on Saturday night, and I didn't sleep last night. I've really been stressed out about this, yep. and I don't know if it's just the topic this morning uh, or, or what it is. I, I don't, really don't look forward to this. I would much rather uh, us do something uh, in a series format that is just kind of exciting and, and encouraging and uplifting and, and all of that kind of stuff, especially as we're getting back together here as a church for the first time in six or eight months. But... Uh, we're going to do this for as long as we can, and like I said, it may just be one week long, and you may come back, and we may preach on John 3.16 next Sunday, just to, <laughs> just to make everybody feel good after this is all over with. We decided to do it in this format so that it's not done in kind of a preaching format, but it will be interactive to some extent. Derek and I have assigned each other, we've been assigned specific parts of this topic this morning, but we are also going to be kind of bantering it back and forth. I don't expect this series to be hugely inspirational, but I do hope that it is hugely informational and helpful to us, okay? And this morning we're going to deal with that subject that is the, probably the most uh, controversial right now uh, in our lives and in our culture, and that is the Christian and politics. So in, in, given the fact that we are involved in a huge uh, political, what we call an election, but it's really a political food fight that is going on uh, right now, we feel like there are some things that we can say that God's Word has to say about this whole issue of because we are both citizens of the kingdom of God and we are citizens of the United States of America. In other words, we are citizens of a secular state. We have two citizenships. And when those interact, the question is how should they interact? In other words, as long as there's no conflict between my citizenship and my involvement in citizen-type politics and my Christian citizenship in the kingdom of God and the values that God gives us in His Word, as long as there's no conflict between those two, we don't have a problem, do we? Houston, there's no problem. 
But when we have a problem is discerning what do we do when there is a conflict between these two? What do we do? Do we have guidance from God's Word about that? How do we as Christians intersect with secular politics? There's the question. And I'm going to say secular politics because America is not Israel. It is not a... uh, a uh, it's chosen nation. We're not the chosen nation. We're not any of those things. We are a secular nation. Though it was founded upon Judeo-Christian values, this has never been a Christian nation. It has never been a Jewish nation. It is a nation that was founded upon Judeo-Christian values, but the framers intended that this not be a religious nation. In fact, they protected us in the Constitution from anyone imposing upon Americans' citizenship any form of religion. And the, that, that, that establishment clause where the government shall not establish religion was not intended to protect the government from Christians. It was, pretend, it was intended to protect Christians from the government and all Americans from the government, from the government dictating this will be the state religion. And so the Establishment Clause is not intended to establish America as a Christian nation. It is intended to do exactly the opposite of that, which is to make sure that America will never be a quote-unquote nation with an established religion as they came, as as the framers came from uh, England, where it was an established religion dictated by the king was... Uh, the Church of England. Uh, and, and there's been some confusion about that. So you need to understand that. I do not approach America as a Christian nation. It is not a Christian nation. It has never been a Christian nation. Many of the framers themselves were agnostics and atheists, although they did believe that the principles of Judeo-Christian faith were valuable principles and foundations for the founding of this experiment. This uh, democratic republic, if you will, they do, did believe that. So, uh, so when you talk about that, you might say we have left the founding principles, but do not say we have ceased to be a Christian nation because we have never been a Christian nation. And I know that some Christians don't like to hear that. And I know that it makes good preaching to preach about America as being founded as a Christian nation, but that simply is not true. Now, I've already hacked some of you off, okay? Um, so let's kind of dig into this a little bit. How do we, what is the biblical information Uh, about how we are to engage in politics, or if we even should. So before we do that, let me me just say, because I have already gotten a text message, and I intended on saying this. You'll notice on the front of our podium this morning, we have some symbols. Two of them you recognize, because they are the symbols of the two major parties. But there's one in the middle, and uh, and someone asked, what is this symbol? It's actually the libertarian symbol. It's a porcupine. And uh, what are porcupines? They're otherwise docile creatures unless you attack them. <laughs> if you leave a libertarian alone, you're okay. Yeah, you're okay. okay. And, uh, and they so just want to be left alone. I, I, we, we put these up here really more than anything just as a, a kind of nod to some humor. But, but I think it's also important that when you look at these three symbols, you recognize that these three symbols represent um, the collection of believers in this room this morning. Because I surmise, I know for sure, that there are at least a few of you that are representative of each of these political parties. And I think that's an important thing for you to... to and there are some probably here this morning who don't believe we ought to be engaged in politics at, at all. At all, right. Yeah, there is the fourth one that's just not representative. It says we should just not engage at all. And I think there's, there's something powerful about that, that, that a body of believers who, who rally together, who worship together, who pray together, um, can have three or four distinct... Uh, convictions about how political things should happen in this country, and and so we want to be respectful to all three of you. Um, We are commanded, we're going to talk about, this is kind of the first commandment um, that we're going to, not the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, so the first one we're going to talk about this morning is the commandment to pray. We are commanded to pray specifically for governing authorities or, or the president, but I would say even beyond the president, your uh, local representatives, your senators, your co- anyone who is in a position of authority politically, we are to pray for them. The text... Do you mean if I'm a Republican, I'm supposed to pray for a Democrat? You have to pray for the Democrat. That's what it means. And Democrats, you have to pray for the Republicans. You really bother me. Just what the Bible says, you know. Um, Let's look at the text. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. 
4. This is probably, of all the verses, there are a couple of more we'll, we'll deal with, but this is probably the most uh, critical one. Paul is writing to young Timothy. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Let me ask you, which people? All people. For kings and all, there's that word again, those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So right off the bat, Paul is telling Timothy, you are to pray for all people, including the king and any other governing authority in the nation that you exist in. And there's two or three reasons why. First of all, it's a commandment. I mean, that, that's an important God commands it of us. We ought to obey Him. Um, secondly, in the text, uh, it says that, that this is how peaceful and quiet lives and godliness and holiness are lived out. It pleases God. God wants all people to come to faith. God wants all people to be saved, even those horrible people in authority who are governing your nation that you disagree with. He wants those people to come to faith as well. So we ought to pray for them. It's a commandment that we are given by God Himself. But secondly, and, and I think this is an important one, there's a, really, there's a really critical word here in this passage, and it's the second or third word, depending on the translation you're reading. I urge then, first of all, he is referring back to something that he has already said. Then or therefore, depending on the, the, the translation you're reading. In other words, what Paul is saying is, in light of what he has just said prior to this, you should pray for all people. What did he say prior to this? Well, he tells Timothy to uh, hold to faith with a good conscience, unlike some who have made shipwreck of their faith. And he actually names two people at the end of chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander, both of which are uh, individuals we don't know a whole lot about, but they were in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was the pastor, and they were doing some really horrible things that was sort of thwarting Timothy's leadership uh, and the doctrine that was being preached and proclaimed there. And so he is saying, unlike those who have made shipwreck of their faith, you hold on to your faith with a good conscience before God. How do you do that? First of all, by praying for all people, including kings and all who are in authority. Does that make sense? So, so what would be the opposite of, of refusing to pray? Because he's saying this is one way you do not make shipwreck of your right. faith. That you do not decide that I will pray for some, but I will not pray for others. Right. Okay. Right. Now get that, folks. That's very, very important. He it says is. you will make shipwreck of your faith if you choose not to pray for certain individuals. Yeah. And in this environment, what are we talking about? Political. Political. Yeah, we're talking about specifically political figures, again, that you are in staunch disagreement with. Um, and, and certainly, I mean, all one has to do is pull up Facebook right, to mm -hmm. see the divide politically that's happening in the country. And even in light of that, even in light of that, and we're going to talk a minute about, about how far do we go with that? How, where is the line? Is there ever a line where we, where we stop praying for someone? And I'm going to submit to you there is not, and I'll give you my reason for why. But why? why? Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, this is good. This is why we're doing no, this. No, this is good. This is why we wanted to do it this way, yeah. because we want this to be uh, interactive. And also, one of us, we're going to have questions that some of you are also asking Absolutely. out there. So how does then this praying for those with whom we even completely and totally and even, I would say not violently, but, but, but with everything that is in us disagree with their politics? Yeah. If they're a leader in our nation or in our state or even in our community, how does praying for them keep us from making shipwreck of our faith? Yeah, well, so, I mean, for one, when you're praying for someone that you that you dislike, or let's just use the word hate, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, I think that's kind of where we all are. Um, when you, let's just get honest here. Yeah, when you, when you are praying for somebody that you hate, um, it disarms hatred, right? It's very difficult to hate someone that you are praying for, uh, interceding for, giving thanks for, by the way. Mm -hmm. When we talk about how to pray, that, those are the four things Paul says, petitions, requests, 
on behalf of this person. Prayers is just sort of a general word for prayer here. But we get to intercession. This means to appeal to a higher authority, being God himself, and to ask on behalf of the person you're praying for. For God to bless that political leader that yeah. you can't stand. Yeah. And it stands for everything you disagree with. What happens? Yeah. It keeps your heart from being infected with hatred. Yes. And with bitterness and with resentment. Yes. That is the must. Because this is all said in the in the context of the Christian's faith not being made shipwreck. Yeah. Whether God does something positive in that other person's life is up to God. But he says this is to keep your faith from being made shipwreck. And I do believe there are many Christians today whose faith is on the yeah. rocks yeah. because of political angst, because of hatred, because of anger, and because of resentment. That shipwrecks our faith. Yeah, yeah. This is important stuff. It's super important. And This and is not just, okay, well, I'm going to pray a little prayer. No. No, this is to ask God's hand to be upon this individual. And, and, and don't do the, like, the loophole thing. Well, yeah, I pray, for, I pray for these people all the time. I pray that God would not let them come to office. Like, that's not what, that's not what he's saying, right? He's praying for God's good upon their life. Yeah. And, and that fourth one, I think, is probably the most difficult, if we're being honest, Thanksgiving. Pray a prayer of thanksgiving for someone that you just extremely dislike. Find something about them that you can be grateful for and express that to God. That is, man, and again, it does. It removes bitterness. It removes, there's a, a great book, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, where he talks about how, you know, hate um, perpetuates hate further. And he uses Nazi Germany, actually, as an example of this, where he talks about, you know, how is it possible that over the course of like two or three years, uh, Germans and Austrians became totally okay with what was happening under Hitler's regime? Because of and hate. It, it, because of hate. And, and it started small. It, it's not like he came in and was like, we're going to start concentration camps. It was like these little quips that were being said that kind of amped up their attitude towards they Jewish people. They eventually had a common enemy. Exactly. And the, Jew. the more and more you build that hate, by the time that third or fourth year came, it was just the natural next step. We've got to eradicate these We've people. We've got to get rid of the Jews. They're the worst, absolutely. And so, yeah, hate, but C.S. Lewis also says, but love, on the other hand, perpetuates love. So, again, if you are making a consistent practice of praying for those who, and this, I mean, honestly, this is practical stuff even beyond politics, right? I mean, there are people in your life that aren't necessarily in political authority that you just outright hate. People who have harmed you, maybe. People who have perpetuated harm in your own life. The, the principle still is at play that when you pray for an individual that you do not like, it is very difficult for bitterness and resentment to take hold of your heart and make shipwreck of your faith, and it will make shipwreck of your faith. And I think that as you're praying for someone that you totally disagree with, that doesn't mean you have to negate the disagreement. And that's very, very important. It doesn't mean that you have to negate the disagreement. But what we're trying to negate is the bitterness and the shipwreck of our faith in the process of this disagreement. That is, that's the human yeah. condition. Yeah. And let me give you a couple examples. I, 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 we've got a couple more that I want to get to, and so I don't want to take up too much time here. But, but let me give you just some historical context, because I think, you know, one of the things that I see common in the church, just the church at large, is that you will see the people on uh, social media, in pulpits, who are saying things like, we need to be in prayer for our president. Typically, the way this plays out is it's generally people calling to pray for the president that they voted that for. That they like. Right. <laughs> yes. So you'll see a lot of evangelicals right now praying for President Trump. We didn't see that as much the eight years prior to that, right? right. Uh, and, and there's an issue with that. There's a massive inconsistency, biblically speaking. What was the historical context that Paul is writing to Timothy? The king that Paul is referring to is the Roman emperor who hated Christians and wanted them all dead. And wanted to kill them all. And actually eventually did kill most of them. Most of the apostles died under Roman Yet pray authority. For Yet pray for him. Give thanks for him. Bless him. Intercede for him. Right? This is the context. So here's, here's the, the mental exercise for you. Think about the worst possible outcome for a president. The worst 
possible individual who has now been brought into office, that's who you're praying for. That's who you're interceding for. That's who you're giving thanks for. This is what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Now, again, who did Paul die under? Nero. The king. The one he's talking about praying for. Paul literally dies under the king that he is saying to pray for. It would have been very easy for him to go, nope, no more prayers for him. No more prayers for him. He's evil. God despises him. But that's not what he says here. The very emperor that we are commanded to pray for, and I've been on this this road, I've seen it physically, literally lit the Appian Way, which is the road from Rome to the seacoast, the Appian Way, with the burning, crucified bodies of Christians. Yep. He literally lit the road at night with the burning bodies of Christians who have been praying for him. This is, this is, this is something. This is tough. We could spend the rest of the morning on this. If we could walk out of here and all of us really get this concept, most of the rest of it would go away. It's true. It's true. We are, there's no doubt, in America, we are filled with the shipwreck of our faith because of anger and hatred and bitterness. And that is fueled. It's fueled by the media. It's fueled by the presidential, by the different political parties, and folks, it is being fueled by preachers. Yeah. Sadly. We are all guilty at some, to some extent. I do not remember in eight years that President Obama was in office ever calling the church to pray for him. I do not remember it. And I have not called the church to pray for Trump, so I'm not a hypocrite. <laughs> but I should have been. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Should have been, but I so violently disagreed with so many of his policies, it was hard for me to even think in those kinds of terms. And that absolutely is wrong. Yeah. And I think we all need to wrap ourselves around this. We are making shipwreck of our faith, many of us, because of this issue. We are failing to pray for those that we detest. And you know, it may be, it may be an indictment, too, on the church's lack of belief that prayer works. Mm-hmm. If we're just being honest, right? Like, why pray for these people? Because, because we don't really think that it's going to make a difference. I love, there was one other passage I was going to bring up, because I just think it's fascinating in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29.7. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet is, uh, um, exists in a time where Israel has been brought out of the land that God has given them and into exile. So think about this for a moment. A foreign nation sweeps into America and destroys the government and begins taking Americans captive and bringing them out of the USA back into some other foreign country, okay? And this is where we live now. This is what God says to those Israelites who've been brought out of their country and into another land. He says this, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. In other words, there is a practical reason to pray for the political opponents, if you will, to the furthest extreme. And and here's, here's the practical point, that if God blesses them, you will be blessed as well. If God changes their hearts, you will reap the rewards. You will reap the benefits. Now, here's what's interesting. 300 or so years after this is written to Timothy, Many kings, many emperors have brought death to the church for centuries. And then we end up with a man named Constantine who comes into office. There's a lot of criticisms that we can heap at Constantine. Certainly his motives were probably not all pure. But Constantine aligned himself with Christianity. And for the first time, Christians lived in peace with the government that they existed under without having to fear for their lives. So imagine reading this passage in their context, 300 years or so of prayer, and it's finally worked. And Christians today laud Constantine for declaring Christianity the Roman religion. Yep. The reality is that's the worst thing that ever happened to the faith. (laughs) Yeah. Because when Christianity became the state religion, it began to be infected with politics, 
it began to be uh, watered down the truth up until that time for 300 years. Christianity was persecuted and it maintained its purity. But when Constantine declared Christianity the state religion, as he did of the Roman Empire, it was the worst thing that happened. That's right. Let me give you the first takeaway. Praying for the president not only benefits him, but by extension benefits the church and your own personal faith. That's, that's, the, that's the takeaway, regardless of who's president. Praying for the president right now, praying for the president 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it not only benefits him, but it benefits the church and your own personal faith. For if he is blessed and God changes his heart, the church reaps the rewards from that, and your own personal faith will be benefited regardless because the root of bitterness and hatred will be snuffed out. Let's talk… Yeah, let's do. Let's talk about the the commandment. We'll do this quickly because I want to get to yours. I want to hear some of your stuff. I've got questions as well. We're commanded to submit. We're commanded to submit. This is the second point. Um, Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 are the two primary passages that we get here. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Rome, let every person be subject or submit themselves to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Can I say something? Yeah. Do not interpret what he is saying, that the man or woman in power is what God established. Right. That's not what he is saying. No. He's saying the institution of government is what God established. Now, we often say so-and-so in office because we agree with him is what? Is God's man. No. 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 The institution is God's, for he ordained it. But we have to be very careful. Yes when we start talking about an individual in that political place as being God's man that he placed in that. And I've heard a lot of that in the last couple of years, and I think that is extreme folly. Very dangerous. It doesn't mean that God can't use the king, that God can't use the president, can't God, God can't use a senator or a congressman. That's not what I'm saying. But that God raised that individual up just like he raised up David in the Old Testament. America is not a theocracy. We are not Israel. Yep. I hack some of you off. I don't care. (laughs) It is so dangerous for us as believers to equate America with Old Testament Israel, to equate our presidents with Old Testament Israel kings. He's not Cyrus either. Yes. Please stop. Stop the madness. Here's the thing. Um, Even in death, our Lord practiced this. So I can't think of another better example than Jesus, right? Uh, John chapter 19, Jesus is being led to be crucified. And if you remember verse 10 of chapter 19, Pilate says to him, you will not, you won't speak to me? Because remember, he's questioning him and Jesus remains silent. And Pilate says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So he's kind of pulling the authority card on Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, Jesus is saying, brother, your authority doesn't end with you. Your authority is only in place because it has been given from my Father. So Jesus recognized even now, of course, Jesus is being led to his death, and we're going to see in a moment, James is going to talk about some, some political, what's the word you want to call that, benefits, if you will, yes. citizen benefits that we have that Jesus does not use here, for one, because he wasn't Roman, he was a Jew, um, but also because the, the cross obviously is a part of God's ordained plan. But this is… This is, I think, something that is really difficult for us to wrap our minds around, to submit ourselves to a governing structure that could mean harm for us. 
And again, it's foreign to us because we don't really face this in America. We don't really have too much. The, the scrutiny that the church faces, the persecution, if you will, that the church faces is like we got to wear a mask while we worship, which we don't even really have to do that. That's something that we have decided, our elders have decided to try and not perpetuate what's going on. And but, I think that the attitude of persecution that oftentimes we carry as Christians today, at least, is because we have been weaned on the uh, teaching that America is a Christian nation. Yeah. And then we see our leaders doing things that violate our Christian faith, and we feel persecuted. Yeah. If we would start with the correct premise yep. that America is not a Christian nation, has never been, and was never intended to be a Christian nation, then we can think more rightly about what is going on in our nation and, and know more correctly how to engage it. And, and, but when we start with this idea, you're stealing the Christianity out of my nation, then we automatically feel on the defensive and as we need to go on the offensive, and I'm, I'm sorry folks, but that is just wrong. It is, a, it is a rewriting of American history it is a misunderstanding of the purpose of the framers of our Constitution, and it ignores the nation they came from. Right. They came from a nation where there was established state religion. It was Christianity, and they left there for that very reason. Because it didn't work. They did not come to America to establish another Christian nation. They ran from one. You cannot legislate faith. And fought a war to separate from. That was not their intent. So we need to get our mind right on the beginning point so that we don't feel persecuted when they do things that violate our Christian faith. Any secular state is going to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's going to, it's going to happen. Now there are times where you will, and I want, I'd like for you to actually answer this, um, where, where you are subject to a law or a practice that violates your Christian convictions. Yes. How do we as American Christians engage in what we would call civil disobedience? Okay, well, let's take the first two points here uh, that Derek has dealt with, that we must continue to pray yep. and that we must continue to have a submissive heart. Yes. Now, you say, well, how can you have a submissive heart if you don't obey? <laughs> right. You can. You can. You can. It's called civil disobedience. It is called non-violent, non-aggressive refusal to violate a higher principle. With the acceptance of consequences. With the acceptance of full acceptance of consequences. Yeah. Exactly right. And, and there are times when Christians all throughout history, uh, certainly within the first 300 years before Constantine declared Christianity the state religion, Christians were faced with this acting in civil disobedience, yet praying for, and yet having a submissive, not a rebellious heart for 300 years. The first 300 years, Christians around the world today do. Still in China, yes, they are being put to death. They, I believe they probably pray for their government more than, than Christians in America, and they are civilly disobedient without rebellion. They're not trying to overthrow the Chinese communist government. They are simply saying, we will not do that. We have a good example of civil disobedience in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Uh, is it Acts 5? Yeah, yeah Acts okay. 5. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter and the apostles, they're told to shut up in the name of Jesus, and this is their response. Whether it is right to obey men or God, you must judge, but as for me, we must obey God. Now that is not a rebellious, in your face, you have no right to say this to me attitude, is it? It is a simple statement of fact. You decide whether we should obey you or not. And by the way, they end up in jail for that. And they do. And, and, they, they, and they peacefully accept that. And they accept the consequences of their civil disobedience. Not revolution. They're not trying to overthrow the Roman government. They're not trying to do any of that kind of thing. They're simply saying, we are citizens of two places. We are citizens on earth, and we are citizens in heaven. And when the two conflict, we must obey God. And we will do so. But we will not do it with a sword. We won't do it with uh, anger and vitriol. We will not do it with trying to overthrow the government. We will simply do it because it is right to do. Yep. Now that's, that's a difficult pill to swallow, isn't it? Particularly because we start off oftentimes in America as Christians believing our nation, our Christian nation is being stole from us and so we need to take it back. 
And if, but if we can get that right, then we, can, uh, if, then we can come back to a more sane place to begin with. Well, how do then we respond in an environment when we are being required, quote-unquote, by our government to do something that clearly violates biblical truth and our moral conscience before God? How do we do that? Do we create revolution? There are some that want to. Peter wanted to. And Jesus corrected him. And he said, he? nope. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. That's the way the kingdom of men works. That is not the way the kingdom of God works. That's, that's the irony. The apostles wanted revolution. They thought Jesus was going to be the great revolutionary. It was the most popular idea of the Messiah in Jesus' day. Yeah. That when the Messiah came, what he was going to do was going to create a war, and he was going to drive the Romans out of the promised land and set the people of Israel back up as the kings of their own land. And that's why they crucified him, because Jesus did not do the very thing they wanted him to do. Okay, so let's, let, let, me, let me ask this. Let's switch here for a minute. So we're commanded to, to pray. We're commanded to submit. If we are doing those things, then I want you to talk about our freedom then to participate. Okay. Because okay. this is where we kind of end up. This is where we all are. How do we participate in politics? And I have 10 minutes. So do it. 45 minutes go so fast. So fast. You're doing this kind of thing, and I probably need at least 30, but I will do all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point you to two passages. First of all, we are commanded to pray. We are commanded to submit okay, to the governing authorities. Civil disobedience comes in when we are required, when they are requiring us to disobey or dishonor God in order to submit at that point, then we, we do not it. submit right. to that, but we act submissively. Yes. Okay, without rebellion. The third is we are free then to participate in politics. We stated it this way, we are commanded to pray, we are commanded to submit, and then we are free to participate in the politics of our nation as Christians. Because this is a big controversy uh, among some Christians today is, uh, should we even be participating in politics at all? Shouldn't we just focus on what we do as Christians and just let, that, let all the heathens you know, do that? Well, that is, that is not biblical example either. That is not biblical truth. Some say we should not participate at all. Some say, that we should participate in everything, okay? Because they're stealing our nation from us, they're stealing our Christian nation, and we gotta take it back. That's where that mindset comes from, which I've already debunked that, that is not true, so that mindset is wrong. To say that we should not participate at all is wrong. To say that we should completely immerse ourselves is wrong, because it takes us away from seek first the, the kingdom. kingdom of God. Then some say, no Christians, everybody, all Christians should participate except pastors. <laughs> and I've had that one. Well, as a pastor, you shouldn't really be talking about these things, okay? So, you know, there's so many different, so what level should we participate? Let me say this, this is an individual decision. And we have to be willing to allow Christians to make that individual decision. You participate at the level that your conscience dictates. We have a vice president of the United States, okay? who is a devoted, dedicated Christian. In fact, the only kind of complaint that most of his enemies have against him is that he's too Christian. Yeah. You know, he's a good guy, he's a, he, he is too Christian. Yet he is participating at the next to the highest level of politics alongside of a man who many people believe is the devil incarnate. So how does Mike Pence do this? Well, Mike Pence has figured out a way that he can participate to that level in politics without violating his Christian faith. And I don't know anybody that says that Mike Pence has ever violated his Christian faith. He's figured it out. So I will not stand in judgment of him for doing that. Right. I could not do that, quite frankly. I'm not wired that way. He has figured out a way to do it. So it is to the level of your conscience. Now you say, well, James, where does that come from? And I, I'm gonna tell you the two passages. I'm not gonna go into them. First of all is Matthew 22. Verse 15 through 21, you remember the Herodians and the Pharisees came to trap Jesus and they said, uh, is it right to pay the, you know, the poll tax, okay? Because Augustus Caesar had instituted a census tax while Joseph had to go to his hometown when Jesus was born to be counted. They paid the tax and they, so they had to go to their hometown. That had been instituted by Augustus Caesar 
And it was a hated law of the Jews. They hated paying a census tax, a poll tax, to the Roman government. It had to be paid in Roman coinage. It had, to, it had the Caesar's uh, picture on the coin. Uh, they had to change their money into Roman money in order to pay that. They hated it. There were a group of zealots who had 25 years before Jesus who had rebelled to the point of physical killing people. A guy by the name of Judas uh, Gamala, uh, he was killed by the Roman government. His three sons carried it on. One of his sons actually became the leader of the Sicarii, which were a group of Jewish zealots who carried the dagger in their coat, and they would go through crowds of people, and they would stab people in order to institute insurrection. Like an ancient Antifa. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They wanted to stir up the Jews into revolution because they hated the Jewish oppression and primarily they hated this tax. So understand that this, is, this was a daily conversation among Jews of Jesus' day and they caught, came to trap Jesus in this question and figured they had him and, and because of the, who the Herodians and the Pharisees were. And Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 5 was when they gave him the coin, he said, whose likeness is an inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And then Jesus said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, Jesus in that basically acknowledged we are under, that we are to submit to the governing authority. Whether it's one we elected or whether it's one that came in, we are not to be insurrectionists. So therefore, render unto Caesar what is his, but render unto God what is his. Now, Jesus right there in one fell swoop put to, put to death both of the extreme voices. There was the extreme voice of the zealots that wanted to overthrow the Romans. Jesus said, no, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Then there were those who, the Essenes, who completely withdrew from all society in order that they might re render themselves completely to God. Jesus is acknowledging that we will live in a community as citizens of a nation and we will constantly have this thing going on that we are citizens of the kingdom and we are citizens of this particular period of time that we are here. Okay, so Jesus seems to indicate that no, we are not to completely withdraw from participation, if you will, in the nation that we are a part of. There's a time when the Apostle Paul actually claimed his rights as a Roman citizen. I don't have time to go into this. It's in, Matthew, it's in Acts chapter 21 through 25. I'd encourage you to read it this afternoon. I had intended to talk through it, but I got to get to the end of it. Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem. The Jews wanted to whip him. The Romans didn't allow riots among the Jews, and so the Roman commander immediately comes in to squash this whole thing, immediately figured out that this uh, Pharisee, or this teacher of the Jews, Paul, was the cause of this problem, so he arrested Paul, put him in chains. And uh, they're screaming for his death and all that. They, and, and so the, the Roman commander then decides, well, what we're going to do is we're going to whip this guy and he's going to tell us what's all going on and then we'll be able to solve it. That was the way the Romans got information. They just we immediately went to torture. Let's just torture him and he'll tell us what's going on and we don't have to question anybody. And so they're about to whip Paul. And he asked the question, the commander, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen who has not been condemned? Game stops right there. He says, the commander says, are you a Roman? Paul says, yes. Uh-oh. Roman law was you could not punish a Roman citizen. One of the rights of Roman citizenship could not be punished without due process. Well, Paul was about to be whipped by a Roman without due process, and he found out, and his life would have been on the line had he done it. So immediately he looks and goes, how could you possibly be a Roman citizen? You're a Jew. He said, hey, I bought my, the commander said, I bought my citizenship with a great deal of money because one of the ways you could get Roman citizenship is if you worked it off and you paid for it, you could buy it. Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. Dun, dun, dun. Show me yours, I'll show you mine. <laughs> And I mean, not that it gave him more rights, but it was certainly more prestigious to have had parents who were actually oh, yeah. Roman citizens. And Paul was from Tarsus. At least one of his parents was a Roman citizen. So Paul was born a Roman citizen with all of the rights that were accrued to the Roman citizen. 
The next two or three chapters, he's going back and forth. They take him to Caesarea because he's got a plot against his life in Jerusalem. He goes before Felix. He goes before Festus. <laughs> so, these sound like guys from Alabama. These were actually Roman rulers, okay? And then Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, he eventually appears before him. And back and forth, Paul realizes eventually they're going to send him back to Jerusalem. He's going to be put to death by the Jews. He sees that that's what's happening. Festus wants to be paid off. He wants to... Uh, kind of have a, a, a feel-good moment with the Jews. So he's about to send Paul back to Jerusalem. Even though he's a Roman citizen, his rights are about to be violated, violated as a Roman citizen. And Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. One of the other things that a, any Roman citizen in the Roman world had the right to do at any moment, if he felt like his rights as a citizen were being violated, he could make a direct appeal to Caesar. And by law, he had to be transported to Rome and await his opportunity to appear before Caesar. That's pretty crazy stuff, isn't it? So we have the Apostle Paul here who has been more than willing to take beatings before. This yes. is his third missionary journey. But in this situation, it is about to be an unjust beating. He's taken plenty of beatings for the faith from the Jews and from other people. But now the Romans are about to violate his right as a citizen of Rome. And in that moment, he invokes his citizenship right. Isn't that interesting? Now, don't you think there were probably a lot of Christians that really criticized Paul for that? They didn't have the right to appeal to Caesar because they weren't Roman citizens. It was highly unusual for a Christian to be a Roman citizen. Christians were hated by Rome. But because Paul had been born as a Roman citizen to Jewish parents before he became a Christian, he not only had his citizenship in Christ, he still had his Roman citizenship with all of its rights. And he saw no problem in invoking his right as a citizen. He participated. He participated. Now, there are many Christians around go, you can imagine, oh, yeah, the big apostle who's talked about being, you know, go ahead and take your persecution for your faith, and now you're going to go to Rome, and all of that kind of stuff. Well, what about us? Yeah. If they had had Roman citizenship, it would have been their full right. And by the way, Caesar, Caesar put him to death. So just Yeah, eventually Caesar put him to death. He spent at least two years in a Roman under house arrest in Rome waiting for that opportunity to appear before Caesar. We don't know exactly what happened, but history tells us that Caesar probably eventually put him to death. He tried him and put him to death. But he did exercise his Roman citizenship. Now, okay, i got to do this real quick. Do Gosh, I'm so sorry, folks. Right. We, hey, we're good. This is, I, I got so involved in your thing that... Uh, I know. So here's the question, folks. Here's the question, okay? Let's, let's, I'm going to give you these questions and then leave it with you. Okay, whenever... When, here, we've got to grapple with this. Are my politics to be shaped by my faith... Or is my faith shaped by my politics? Every one of us as American citizens got to grapple with that. Which is most important? Is, are my politics shaped by my faith? Or have I allowed my faith to be shaped by politics? When there is a conflict... This is a hierarchy of values. This is how I have come to understand how I vote. Okay? I'm not going to tell you who I vote for, but I'll tell you how I have made this decision my entire adult life as a Christian, how I vote. There I have a hierarchy of values. I believe the Bible has a hierarchy of values. So that is what determines for me my politics. My politics do not determine for me my faith. My faith, based on a hierarchy of values, determines for me how I will vote. I have values as a Christian. I have one value that is the supreme value that I believe the Bible teaches and that I hold to. I will vote for the individual who upholds that supreme, biblical, moral, Christian value, even if they violate all of the others that I hold beneath it. Because if I did not do that, then I would be elevating a lower value over the supreme value to get the individual in office that I want. And as a Christian, I can't do that. You know, we, 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 there's a lot of talk nowadays among Christians saying, well, I'm no longer going to be a single-issue voter. 
I'm not a single issue voter either, but there is one supreme value that I will not violate. And I will not vote for someone who is going to violate that value. Just won't do it. I cannot stand before God and, and, and in good conscience say, I elevated lower values above the supreme value because this dude had some other things that I really wanted. I won't do that. Now, I will say to you, you as an individual believer must get before God and you must ask Him, does your faith shape your politics? Or are your politics shaping your faith? The protection of the innocent unborn life that cannot protect itself. There are other values. There are definitely other values. But that is the supreme value before God for me. To stand for the innocent unborn life that cannot protect itself. And I will stand on that value. I will stand before God in good conscience. Father, I elevated that value to the highest because I believe you do, and I had to subjugate other values to that, and that is how I voted. I would not vote for someone who was going to violate the supreme value that I have. People say, well, nothing's changed in 40-something years since Roe v. Wade. That is not my responsibility before God. My responsibility before God is to be true to that value. I wish it was not so. But it is so. Since 1973, my freshman year in college, it has become so for me. Now, if you do not hold that, you have to answer to God for that, not me. Right. And I'm going to give you the freedom. But I, what I would like for people to do is to think biblically, not think politically. And can I? Can we I, are called to a higher citizenship. Can, can I close with this? Because I know we got to. I know we got to get cut. We're being. We're, I think we've already been cut off on the stream because they have to renew it. But, but can I close with this no, challenge? No. Okay. Can I close with this challenge for everybody in here? And, and this is for your individual interactions with other believers, non-believers. It's uh, especially, I think, important on social media. Stop calling Christian brothers and sisters names. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm going to give it to you from, from the actual text. So it's not coming from me. It's coming from God's Word. Regardless of where your supreme values are versus where other supreme values are, how you interact with others, remember Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I posted this earlier this week, but I just want to re- repeat it. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, so that's what we just talked about, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Regardless. And we can debate these issues within the body of Christ without calling names. Yes. And without being mean. Yes. And sometimes debate can get pretty pointed. That's okay. As long as we do not make it a standard of fellowship. That's right. That's right. Has this been fun? Some of you are like, They cut us off. So some of the people there really need to hear that last part. Okay, that's all right. right. God bless you. I don't know what we're going to do next week, but we're going to do something. We'll let you know.